Hello. Um, our reading today is from Isaiah chapter 1 and Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. In our church Bibles, it's 685. Now, uh, since it's a large uh, passage, uh, Mel and I are going to take turns. We also have a third member joining us because we don't have crush today. <laughs> On that note, uh, let's start reading Isaiah chapter 1. Uh, the vision concerning Judah, uh, Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and uh, Hezekiah, king of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its master and the donkey its owner's manger, but uh, Israel does not know my people, do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord, they have spurned the Holy One, of Israel and turn their back on him. Why should you be beaten any more? Why should you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and bruise and open sores, not cleaned or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when over, overthrown, overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in, in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber uh, field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty has left us some uh, survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, where are they to me, says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my coats? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. You, your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they sh sh shall be like wool. You are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. 
They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the God Almighty, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foe and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly uh, purge away your drawers and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders in a day of old, your rulers at the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the uh, city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her, her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of the sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. Chapter 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the word. Lord, let us be glorified. Thank you very much, Jerry and Marilyn and Reuben. Uh, well, morning, everyone. My name's Gareth. I'm one of the ministers here at Christchurch, and we're going to be looking at that passage together. Imagine the hall is packed as you take your seat on the front row. Oops, pressing the wrong button there. You take your seat on the front row, the lights go down, and the music begins. Boom, boom, boom. The kettle drum is beaten, and it rattles your rib cage. Ba-da-ba! The brass plays out piercingly, and the strings start to swell and swirl. And as you listen to this overture, this first piece of music, it's like you're lifted out of yourself. The troubles of the day, they just fade for a moment, and you're transported. Well, this morning, we're going to be hearing this overture from Isaiah chapter 1. In this, Isaiah introduces us to many of the ideas that we're going to see over the coming weeks in this series as we go through this great book of the Old Testament. This is an overture, not of earth, but an overture from heaven. And because it is God playing for us, it will leave us changed. It will leave us changed for the better, if we will listen. So that is the invitation to you as we come to this. Would you listen? Listen to the music. Uh, the music tells us that God is great and God is good. That's the headline we're going to think about for this morning, but also in some ways throughout the whole series. God is great and God is good. Or if I might try and attempt. I'm not reading anything that looks like this, by the way. I've written out in like, English writing. 
Yao Mei Xin. Um, I will look forward to receiving my marks uh, from my coach later. Uh, passable at best, possible. No, 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 that's not what I mean. No, no. It's fine. Hopefully, you recognize I was trying to say the thing at the bottom, at least, if that is your language. God is great, and God is good. Great. Isaiah will show us that God is lifted up, He is high, He is exalted. He is different to you and me. And Isaiah is going to show us that God is good. He is a God of justice, of truth, of beauty, of love. That is who God is. All right, you might ask, what's that got to do with me? What has God got to do with me, really? That he's great and good? Well, that's great and good for him. What does it mean for me, here, now? Well, here's the relevance. Imagine your life is like a performance, a music performance itself. You play in this world. You, you are given an instrument, your body, your thoughts, your actions. But when you don't know God, it's like you're trying to play along to an orchestra that you cannot hear. Are you in time? Are you in tune? We all live our lives around what we think is really great and really good, don't we? The things you really care about, that's what you think is great. That's what you think goodness is. And Isaiah wants to show us who God is. He is truly great and truly good. And if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, we love that you're here. And I would just invite you for the next few minutes to hear the music of heaven and see how much greater life can be with God. And for the rest of us who are believers, it's great you're here too. It can sometimes be that the orchestra we're playing along to gets a bit muted by the other things in life. Maybe you've come this morning and thought, oh, it feels like only yesterday I was here on Sunday and I've not really thought about God since then. Just so much in our lives. The music of heaven gets muted. Here's a chance then to recalibrate our own lives along with God. Okay, um, let's um, just get into a bit of an overview of uh, Isaiah. Um, so firstly, timescales. This is a bit of a timeline. This is very brief. Um, the dates are approximate, but they're all in uh, BC, so before Christ. This is about 2,700 years ago. Um, we've got 740 to 700 BC. Uh, that's the first date. Uh, and that is Isaiah chapter 1 to 39. So Isaiah is writing in chapters 1 to 39 about that timescale. Uh, at the beginning of the reading we just had, we have the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So this is the southern kingdom of God's people that Isaiah saw, and he names four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And they all reign then. And that um, is uh, the first bit, Isaiah 1 to 39. And we're going to look at that, those chapters over this coming term. Then there's a big gap. Uh, and then Isaiah is writing, into the, uh, as it were, looking into the future. Isaiah 40 to 55 is writing um, but for periods 605 to 540 BC. And then the final bit of the book there, 56 to 66, um, that uh, 100 years from 540. And just to give you an idea of the historical context of that, so Isaiah, he's alive in that first section, but he writes his whole book then. And then the other two sections are about the exile. The people are taken into Babylon in captivity. Before then, they're allowed to return. 
So that's just giving a little bit of an overview of the history of uh, the book of Isaiah and what it's writing about. Um, and we'll probably develop this diagram as we go on, as other things happen, as we go through the series. So that's a brief bit. Don't worry about remembering all this, by the way. There's never going to be a quiz on that. Um, don't test me on the exact dates behind me right now. Um, here now is an overview of the passage. Now, these aren't all the points, okay? You might think, well, I've got to remember those. No, don't worry. But just to give us a bit of a feel, because what we're going to do, we are going to go through this passage and try and pick out quite a lot of the poetry within it. I'll have this up as we go through as well. Um, I'm, I might not even read it out now, but just so you know, we have a way that we're heading through the passage. And as we do that, we're going to think, how would the original hearers have heard this music from Isaiah, from God? And then once we've gone through it, we'll think, how does it apply to us? I just looked at that clock and thought it was 20 past seven, and I've been going for a lot longer than I realized, but that clock's broken. <laughs> all right, uh, and by the way, it is warm in here. Um, I think we all know that. If at any point you need a break, go out and get a drink or some fresh air, please, please do that. Don't sit and sweat in silence, thinking you've just got to kind of tough it out. At uh, any point, you may leave, uh, and I may join you at some point as well. All right, let's get into it. In verse two, we hear, oh, my animations are broken. Oh, never mind, I'll leave it up. We hear this. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. In this first section, God is talking about rebellion. And it's like he wraps his hammer on the, uh, his gavel on the, on the desk and says, listen up, court is in session. I've got something to say. And what he has to say is that his children have rebelled. That's there in verse 2. I reared children. He brought up his children, his people. And what did the children do? They were spiteful. They kicked against him. They didn't want to know him. And they rejected him. How painful is that straight from the off? Of all the things God could say, he says, I brought up children and they have rejected me. Some of us here know that pain yourself. You have been rejected by a child whom you cared for. Of course, you were far from perfect because we all are far from perfect. But how painful is that to have a child reject you and not want to know you? And this is the God of heaven who has always loved them and cared for them. Then there are two animals brought in to the picture, an ox and a donkey. See, an ox and a donkey, um, they weren't very bright animals. Well, they're still not, are they? And Isaiah is saying, look, even these pretty dim creatures, at least they know who their master is. But the people of Israel, they don't know God, their father. Israel is worse than an ox and a dim donkey. And so right here at the beginning, we have a definition of what sin is. Uh, sin is a little word the Bible often uses to say, uh, to kind of catch all about what we've done wrong. And here we see that sin is stupidity. Sin is stupidity. Uh, someone once sent me a video of a sheep. It had been lodged in a hole, uh, and um, two guys were pulling one hand, uh, like one on each back leg, pulling the sheep out of this hole. It came out. The sheep you know, literally bounced three times straight into another hole. Uh, what the men said wasn't recorded on the video. But sin is stupidity. It is going to something that doesn't make sense. Do you feel that in your own life? Are there things that you do that you keep returning to that you know are not good for you? It's a form of stupidity, isn't it? And I, and I don't mean to kind of have a go at you any more than I have a go at myself. 
I'm drawn to things that I think will make me happier, and I keep falling into the same hole because I'm going away from God. That's what sin is, God who is great and God who is good. And I think, ah, oh, thanks, God, but I'll live my own life. I'll do it myself. For example, let's say I'm having a bit of a frustrating time in one part of my life, and I can't seem to get hold of anything. Nothing's working. Oh, I feel annoyed. And then one of my children does something that's a bit annoying. And I, what do I know God says? Fathers, do not exasperate your children. He says that very clearly to me, as he does to every father. But what do I think in my stupidity? I just want to assert myself. This will make me feel better. Work's not going so well, but if I just show this kid who's boss, I'll feel better. Fathers, do we feel better? No. It is stupid, and yet it is the human condition to go away from God, who is great and good. Rebellion. God continues to paint this picture, verse four. He has two couplets. We have a sinful nation and a guilty people. That's in the first bit of verse four. And then the second bit, evil brood and corrupt children. Sinful nation, guilty people, evil brood, corrupt children. Israel, you see, is kind of like state and church. It's quite hard for us reading because they were both a religious people and a national identity. So sinful nation, we can understand that, like a, a country like this. But also they were children of God. They were his uh, particular people. Israel was both state and church. And we might push that a little bit further and say Israel were both public and private. On a public scale and on a, uh, things that could be seen. But then also in the family with God. Things that happen in the home. Public and private. And in both of those, they have forsaken the Lord. In public, they've turned against him, and in private, they've gone against him. They have rejected him, and they are corrupt. And we'll come on to that idea a little bit more uh, in a few verses' time. So, um, that is the rebellion. Now we move on to the rebellion's result. What comes as a result of this sin, this stupidity? Well, did you hear it as it was read in verses 5 to 6? Imagine... Uh, uh, a little while ago, I had a pain in one of my heels. I don't know what it was, but it, was, it just hurt, so I had to kind of walk on the front of my toes. Maybe you had that, like you have to avoid one bit of your foot or something. But imagine the front of your foot also hurt, and your other foot. And actually, when you sat down, that ached. And as you lay down, you couldn't sleep because your back hurt, and you were covered in bruises and sores. No soundness. That is what the people of God were experiencing, because they had rebelled. Because when you go away from what is good and great, what are you left with? What is awful? What is evil? The pictures stack up. Verse 7, your country is desolate, burned with fire. Have you seen any videos of the wildfires that sweep through? Utterly destroy. They are terrifying. Your fields have been stripped by foreigners. We've seen, sadly, many invasions over the last few years on the news, let alone through history. How terrible that is to be invaded and your good things taken from you. And then verse 8. What does God call them? Still after all this, daughter Zion. He still loves her. He loves her. She is precious and yet she's pitiful. Precious yet pitiful. Just one of the lines there, hut in a cucumber field. That's the most interesting one to me. Oh, what's that mean, a hut in a cucumber field? Well, during harvest, you didn't want to travel from your house all the way to the fields. You could cut down your commute by just knocking up a quick like, lean-to in the field. 
You'd sleep there during harvest, get the job done. Did you build a good hut? No. It would fall over, probably by the end of the season. And that is what this beautiful daughter had become. This glorious city had become like a little shed falling down. Precious yet pitiful. That is the result of rebellion, of the stupidity of going against God, who is great and good, leaving him behind. And then we have uh, verse 9. And here is a, a real moment of... Because we see God is at work here. Someone might have thought, well, God's obviously forgotten. He's just taken his mind off his people for a moment. But no, verse 9 says God is at work in this judgment. There's a hint here that God lies behind this judgment. It's not an accident. But very clearly, at least, we see the grace of God. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors. God saved them. He left a few. There's a mention of Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities in the Old Testament famous for utterly being destroyed because of their wickedness. They would have become like that. That was rebellion and rebellion's result. The city's on its knees. The people are down and pretty much out. And we might ask, well, but when are they trying to fix it, right? If you're, if you're injured, you go to the doctor. If you're invaded, you try and build your army. If God abandons you, it seems you, you might call out to him. Had they tried to do anything? And the answer is yes, and they'd done it terribly. And that's where we move on to the, sec- uh, the next section about empty worship. This is in verses 10 to 15. The people now are addressed as if they were Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't know how you found these verses as they were read. Just look at verse 14, for example, and 15. Zoom in there. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals. God's talking about their worship, what they do. All these things they do to praise God. Those things, what does he say? I hate with all my being. I hate with all my being. Not just I dislike. Not just it's a bit mixed. I hate with all my being. God who is great and God who is good hates all these things with his whole being. And then verse 15, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'm not listening. I'm not listening. That should chill us. If we were the people there, that would frighten us. The God who we thought we could always talk to has said he isn't listening. Why? Well, it's in the end of 15. Your hands are full of blood. You can picture a priest standing there, maybe with a kind of smug smile on his face. I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing good worship. Hear me, Lord. Hear the cries of your people. And from his fingers drips blood. But it's not the blood of sacrifices that God has asked for. No, it's the blood of oppression and violence. And so God doesn't listen. Because with the very hands they come to him and cry out, they show they do not care. They do not care about what God cares about. Just imagine if God said that to us. Christchurch Harpen, I'm not listening to your prayers. Your worship, I cannot stand. That is what it was like for the people to hear these words. These efforts you put on, worse than useless. They make me angry. They were trying to do something which helped not one bit. 
Okay, thank you. Um, if you're able to, please could you just stand for a moment? If, you, if you're able to, if you could you just stand for a moment? Um, because I want to stretch, uh, and it's hot in here, so I'm going to stretch, and you might want to just turn around. And uh, remember, if you do anything that moves your body, that helps you to listen. So you are the most godly person the more you move, okay? So I'll just give you 10 seconds to stretch around, um, maybe fan yourself, and um, then we'll carry on. It's hot in here, isn't it? Oh. Sorry, not much room for lunges, are there? But, um, and if you need to get a drink or anything like that, look around the room, stretch out, great. Take, another, take a seat again, take another seat. You can, go, you can move if you like. All right, as we catch our breath, rebellion turning away. The result, judgment. And they tried to fix it by worship, but it was awful worship, and so God hated it. What should they do then? What should they do? And God tells them there in verse 16, wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. He basically says, you need to respond. You need to sort this out. Stop putting your efforts into false worship. And instead, verse 17, learn to do right. And here God defines what doing right is. Because we might have expected, okay, um, don't have a song and then a Bible reading. Why not swap that around? Because that's really what I want. I want your worship to be tweaked. But what does God say instead? This is really striking. Learn to do right, seek justice. Can you see that? Seek justice. Then he spells it out even more clearly. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. In that society, if the husband and father, he died, then there wasn't someone to provide for the children. There wasn't someone to care for his widow. They were in need. And they were totally unimportant. In that society, totally unimportant. Who cares for those people? Because the priests didn't. Who does care for them? God. God cares. He cares so much that he hates the worship of those who don't care. Do you see how striking that is? This fatherless and widow motif, it comes again in verse 23. That's how important it is. This bit's going to be repeated in a few moments. We're going to keep going, but we're going to think about how that applies to us in a few moments as well. Learn to do right. Worship in line with God, who is great and good. And then God spells out, there are just two choices in verses 18 to 20, two outcomes. You can either be white and washed, that is no longer covered in blood, you can be white and washed, or you can be devoured and destroyed. And it's easy to know how to get there. Verse 19, if you want to be clean, you obey. And verse 20, if you want to be totally destroyed, you just keep rebelling. Stay as you are. Which is it to be? The pictures keep coming. Verses 21 to 23, we see both adultery and adulteration. This is one of the things that particularly struck me as I was um, preparing. You see, in verse 21, he starts using the language of prostitution, of unfaithfulness. Someone, in this case a woman, not keeping her marriage vows, becoming unfaithful. And it was really striking to me that unfaithfulness is linked to violence. Do you see that in verse 21? By being unfaithful... She now has murderers in her city. Unfaithfulness is linked to violence. And the more I thought about that, the more I realized that is the case. Because anyone who commits adultery, who is unfaithful, 
they don't do it for their partner's sake, do they? They don't think that'll help the kids. No, they do it for their own sake, at the expense of others. It is a form of relational violence. And if you can do that to the people you love the most, you can do it to anyone, can't you? Unfaithfulness is linked to violence. And then, as he goes on, unfaithfulness is linked to injustice. He talks in verse 22 about choice wine diluted with water. Imagine you're in a restaurant. Um, I don't know if this is your style, but let's say you end up with the most expensive uh, bottle of wine on the menu. You know the one that they're surprised when you order it because they've never sold one before? And they pour you the glass. Uh, and then uh, someone comes along, let's say I come along and say, oh, you've got a, a glass of wine here, and you've also got a glass of water. That's really inefficient. And before you can stop me, I pick up your water and tip it into the wine. I've helped you out, I say. Give me a tip if you like. How do you feel? Is the wine better? No. Is it even half good? No, it's ruined. You can't add water to wine without messing it all up. That's the idea of adulteration. We might think that, well, a church that's kind of doing the right thing, a few bit bad bits, but kind of doing the right thing, that's half good. Isaiah says, no, unfaithfulness, well, that leads to worse things, to injustice. Verse 23, he talks about leaders who are rebels, who love bribes. If I'm a leader and, and there's a widow or an orphan over there, and I could be on their side, or I could be on the side of the person with the money and the power, who's going to reward me. They're not helpful, they're not strategic. These people. And if I am mixed, I might worship God on a Sunday, but I will go for the money the rest of the time. Do not defend, they do not defend the cause of the fatherless, and the widow's case does not come before them. See, private life goes into public life. Unfaithfulness starts relationally, and it goes towards violence. It goes towards injustice. So we mustn't believe the lie, spread by some, that what you do in private doesn't matter as long as you conduct yourself well in public. If you've been taken in by that, I don't know what you've made of the news the last few years. People's private life comes out sooner or later. I had a nice moment of that reminder. I came over to talk to Sarah about the timing of the service, and I found out the microphone was on. Um, I hope I wasn't grumpy. Maybe I was. What we are in private comes out, doesn't it? Private and public are linked. God cares. Because he is great and good, he doesn't just care about our public face. He cares about our private one. Well, what about this? What's going to happen with injustice and violence in the streets? Verse 24, God is going to act. God is going to act because he is great and good. But it's terrifying. I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. But who's he talking about? His own people. The footnote makes it clear, I'll turn my hand against you. That is against Jerusalem. If that's there in your, um, your version. Enemies. And then there are two outcomes again. Verse 26 to 27, those who say sorry, they will be made righteous. Verse 28, those who continue to rebel will perish and be broken. And they'll be let down. Verses 29, uh, 27, sorry, to, uh, no, 29 to 31, they show that the things that people have put their trust in, the other gods that they've worshipped, talks about sacred oaks, they go worship another god at a sacred oak. God says, 
oak's going to fail. The garden in which you worship this deity, well, it's going to be dry. Is your garden dry at the moment? (laughs) That's what your God is going to be like, dry, leaving you gasping. And the mighty man in verse 31, the the powerful one whom you trusted, he's going to burn up. His achievements are going to pass away. God is going to act. And their other gods and their powerful people are going to be no help whatsoever. Now, if you're new to Christian things, or maybe if you're not, you might think, why is God so angry? Why is he so angry? I thought, God is good. He's a loving God. How can he say things like, I will vent my wrath? It's a good question, isn't it? Well, let me ask you, is anger a good thing or a bad thing? It depends, doesn't it? If you were walking by and you saw something truly unjust happening, like, a, like an adult mercilessly beating a child, mercilessly, what should you feel? Curiosity? You should feel anger. It would be right to feel that. And that's us, and we're mixed. What is it like for God, who is truly great and truly good, to see injustice? Here's the thing. God's anger is his goodness reacting to evil. There's sometimes the idea that love and hate are kind of opposites, but they're not. Hate is love's reaction to evil, the things that threaten what is good. See, God sees the orphans being oppressed, all the widows being neglected, and he is angry with those who made that happen. It's goodness. It's his goodness that reacts to evil, and that is why he is angry, and that is a good thing because it means, look, who of us has not sent some sort of injustice in our own lives or those we care for or certainly others around the world who we've seen? It is good to know that God hates that injustice and that he will act. Okay. Uh, we had the few verses read in chapter 2, and we're just going to think about those in communion, not now. Uh, but the, the passage finishes, uh, verse 5 of chapter 2, with let us li- walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Well, what does this mean then for us here in Harpenden at Christchurch? Well, the light of the Lord, we know who that is. It is Jesus. And Isaiah 1 is not directly to us. It was to the people then. Jesus fulfills this and shows us what it means to do, to do these things. But we can take lessons, as it were, through the lens of Jesus. Uh, what do we want to be about at Christchurch Harpenden? Well, we want to be a church that loves Christ, loves his church, and loves Harpenden. We want to care in that order to love God. And so we're going to think about how we might Oh, that didn't work either. should have tested my animations. Someone was telling me when the, when the preacher gets that wrong, it's, um, it's a bit annoying, and uh, yes, it is, so sorry about that. We want to love Christ, firstly. What does it mean to love Christ as we think about this passage? Well, let's listen to him. The people didn't listen to God. Listen to Jesus and be changed by him. Might ask you an uncomfortable question about your private life. Where in your private life is the light of Jesus not yet shining? 
Is it how you use your money? If your tax return was made more public, would it show someone who is living for Jesus or someone who is compromised? What about in your business practices or, or your relational negotiations? Integrity? And what's your reaction when you see people in need, particularly those who are weak? Does your heart go to them? Or do you allow the sinful nature to say, great, one less person who's not ahead of me in the queue? The challenge to God's people is still a challenge to us now that we might be those who love Jesus and allow ourselves to be changed by his love. Love church. How might we love one another as we think about these verses? Well, do you see that Monday to Saturday is in some ways more important than Sunday? <laughs> yes, a minister did just tell you that, that the rest of the week is kind of more important than Sunday. Because if it's empty worship, God doesn't just ambivalent about it, he hates it. So let us encourage each other in our walks for the rest of the week. Let us be praying for each other. Maybe take a prayer request. Why not after this service say to someone you know, how can I pray for you this week? And encourage them in that. We have ministries linked to the church that we support who look after those who are vulnerable. Just picking one out of several, we support the work of Azalea. A great thing to do to encourage those who are involved in that work, to pray for them and it, maybe get involved ourselves. Because that's the heart of God, to care. And in Sunday services, let's keep God the focus. Sometimes we miss the music of heaven. Let's keep God the focus. We want our services to be appealing in lots of ways. But let's most of all make them appealing with God himself. As we pray for the children and youth work, as we serve at that, we want them to know God because that is the only one. He is the only one who can give them what they need. And we want to be a church that loves Harpenden. And there are lots of ways we can do that. Most of all, let us love them by showing them this God. Lots of people around us care about justice. It's a big thing, isn't it? Justice in our society, in all sorts of areas of life. We can show them. Do you know who really cares about justice? God does. Do you know who stands for the weak? Do you know who hates religious hypocrisy? God does. He is good and he is great. And unlike us, he is able to sort it out and he is uncompromised. He has never gone wrong because of who he is. In our Sunday services, we want to amaze people with Jesus and that is what we want to do for the town and pray for them that they would come to know Christ too. We've covered a lot of ground. Let me give you a minute as the musicians come up just to reflect and then we're going to sing. A minute of quiet just by ourselves to reflect or if you need to get a drink of water, please do so. And then we'll sing just a moment by ourselves. Isaiah 1 verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. How? How? How can people be forgiven for rebellion that is like blood on the hands? Well, by blood by the blood of Jesus Christ, who died for us. And it's his death that we remember as we share communion together now. You see, we were those who, like Israel, had rebelled against God 
in private and in public. We were those deserving of judgment for our unfaithfulness, which led to hurting others. Violence. It led to ignoring those in need. Injustice. But Jesus came. Jesus, who is great, and Jesus, who is good, came to deliver us, to make us a righteous nation, a holy people, as God had promised all those years ago. If you're new to church, communion doesn't make anyone a Christian. It doesn't change your status. This table is just for anyone who is already believing in Jesus and trusting in him. And if that's not you yet, you can just pass it along as it comes. That's the right thing to do. For the rest of us, we'll um, take the bread and then the cup, which is grape juice, uh, one after the other. Well, let's pray. We do not presume to come to this your table, merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord, whose nature is always to have mercy. Grant us, therefore, gracious Lord, so to eat the flesh of your dear Son, Jesus Christ, and to drink his blood, that our sinful bodies may be made clean by his bodies, and our souls washed through his most precious blood, and that we may evermore dwell in him and he in us. Amen. I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Well, we're now going to pass the bread around. Um, please uh, keep it, and then we'll eat together. Um, there is some gluten-free bread in the smaller um, cups on the plate. Um, please keep it uh, and take this time in the quiet just to reflect, and then we'll eat together when everyone's been served. Friends, this is the body of Jesus Christ given for you. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. When? When Jesus gave his life. When Jesus who is great and Jesus who is good came to be exalted on a hill. Crucified to establish God's kingdom. A kingdom of peace bought with his blood that anyone who wished might come and be forgiven. And as we meet here this morning with people from many countries who have streamed to the mountain of the Lord in joy, we can celebrate together. Because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, after supper he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. We're now going to pass the cups around, and again, we'll save them and drink together when everyone has been served. Almighty God, we thank you for feeding us by faith with the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Through him, we offer you our souls and bodies to be a living sacrifice. Send us out in the power of your Spirit to live and work to your praise and glory. And Father, as we bring our service to a close now, we pray you would be with us by your Spirit. 
would we be those who love Christ? Would we be those uh, who together love your people here? And would we also be together the people who seek to reach out to this town with the love of Jesus, who is great and good? In Jesus' name, amen.